everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Okay. Uh, those of you who are followers of Christ, uh, by the way, if you're a guest with us, we just want you to know this is a church where there are people who are followers of Christ, people who are not followers of Christ, and both are equally welcome here. And in fact, what we discover is oftentimes those who are Christians and those who are not have more in common than you might realize at first. So first of all, those of you who are followers of Christ, uh, is this familiar to you? you become a Christian, whether you grew up in the church or whether you grew up outside the church, you come to faith and things are somewhat magical. Now, this isn't for everybody. For some of you, you just kind of eased into faith and things didn't feel tremendously different. But for others of you, it was like a transformative experience. It was a life-changing experience. I know this was the case for me. I was a teenager when I came from outside the church with no experience with religion or the teachings of Christ and came uh, inside the church. And for me, it was, it was euphoric for, for several years. And I remember the feeling that me and Jesus were like this. We were as tight, like it just felt viscerally close. Now, in my own journey, I don't know about you, but as I look back on it, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between teenage emotions and hormones and faith. Just be, be honest. But as I talk to many people who come to Christ in your 20s or 30s or later, uh, in fact, just a, a couple of months ago, I baptized a friend of mine in his 50s. He's having that encounter right now that euphoric sense of God is incredibly close, God is my best friend. And at some point, uh, you, you often then hit a wall. Again, not everybody. Some people, you keep that close feeling a long time or most of your life, but others, you just hit this wall. For me, it was in my 20s. I'd been a follower of Christ about 10 years, and suddenly that encounter with Christ felt much more elusive to me than it did before. Before, it was just, it was just there. And suddenly, it feels elusive. It might be because of time, it might be because of some experiences. That was my case. I had some very intense, painful experiences in my early 20s that really did uh, what I would call a number on my faith. And then on the other side of that wall, some people, they hit the wall and they ricochet off it and that's it. Deconstruction, ex-evangelical, we're out. And that's what's going on with a lot of people today. Um, it's almost in vogue to deconstruct your faith. And I know for many people who are in full-blown deconstruction, it's a tremendously painful thing. Um, for me, that happened in the 1990s. For me, it started in 1997. There's a part of me, I feel like a grandpa. Or I feel like a get-off-my-lawn. I'm like, oh, I did that. Like, I'm like, I'm, like cooler. But, but I'm noticing, and people I talk to right now, this massive deconstruction because they hit a wall and they bounce off the wall and they say, I'm out. That's it. I'm done. But for most of us, we're trying to find a way over that wall. We're trying to tunnel under or cut a hole in it or walk around it or scale over it because we, in the wonderful words of the centurion, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I, I still believe it's true, but I'm not experiencing it like I used to. And hence this series, Minding the Gap. Uh, today's week one of the series, Minding the Gap between what I believe about God and what I experience from God. There's a gap for most of us. 
Now, those of you who are not followers of Christ, that might surprise you. Maybe you know that about those of us who are followers. Maybe you don't. As I speak to many of you and people in my life I dearly love who are not followers of Christ, the, the common thing I've discovered with you is that you want the gap shrunk before you take the, the step of faith to believe. I've, I've talked to so many of you where you'll just say, look, the evidence is compelling. Like the idea that Jesus was more than a man, the idea that he died for sin, that he rose from the dead, that's compelling, but I have to have some kind of a emotional or visceral encounter with Christ if I'm gonna believe. And what I often coach people is, what if you take the leap of faith first and then see what happens next? But I get it, you, you are encountering the same gap. What do we do and how do we mind the gap? Uh, to prepare for this series, I've actually been cooking on this one for a few years, and I've now asked hundreds and hundreds, mostly followers of Christ, hundreds of followers of Christ, probably four or 500, what gap do you experience or do you run into between your belief and your encounter? And here are the top three. Now, you might have others, but here are the top three. I believe God loves me, but I don't feel it. I believe God is with me, but I don't see it. I thought I'd be further along by now. Can you relate to those? Is that gaps for you too? Listen, I believe God is love, but I struggle to experience that God loves me. This in my life was a gap quite, for quite a long time. And I remember in 2015, it was about six years ago, and I'm like, I've had enough of this gap. I've just had enough. It's time to chase the love of God for myself. The love of God that I believe is particular, but I don't feel or experience. And so I've been on like a six-year bender like a six-year uh, drunken rage chasing the particular love of God for me. And I'll, I'll tell you now, it's changed my life. Some of you are doing the math right now. You're like, when did he come to Discovery? How long has he been? No, it's true. It's a part of my own journey as a pastor. One of the, I'll just open up. One of the interesting challenges of being a church staff member is sometimes it can increase the gap. Sometimes doing the work for God can challenge your relationship with God. I believe God loves me, but I don't feel it. How about this one? I believe God is with me, but I don't see it. We are taught that God is with us all the time, that God is close to the brokenhearted, and yet it can feel so difficult sometimes, can't it? It can feel like it's all on your shoulders, or you just forget. This is what we covered last week, just in, in brief. You can just quickly forget that God is with you. And then the one that I hear a lot, particularly from followers of Christ, particularly those of us who have a decade or more under our belt, what you say is, I just thought I'd be further along by now. I just thought I'd be a better Christian. I don't know how else to say it. I just, I thought I would be closer to Jesus than I am. I thought faith would be easier. Good people orient their entire lives around what they believe about God and, and they sacrifice a great deal to follow God and, and for church people particularly, this can be especially difficult because you put so much effort into engaging God. But if you are honest, you might say that much of that effort feels futile. The love and the freedom and the peace that Jesus promises to followers of God can feel elusive sometimes or unattainable. 
We're going to spend several weeks and we're going to peel away these three gaps. We're going to look at the nature of doubt. We're going to understand also the nature of faith. What is faith and what isn't faith? So today's kind of an overview. Uh, It's one of those messages where we kind of open the can of worms, but we don't necessarily like uh, solve the can of worms. I just want to help you understand that. Those of you who like your serial dramas, this is definitely the pilot episode setting up the premise. But there is a bizarre story in the Gospels. In all my years of preaching, I don't think I've ever preached it before because quite frankly, I don't know what to do with that. And it's very uncomfortable as a preacher when there's something in the Bible, you're like, I think I'm just going to stay away from that one. But I'm down to my last few sermons here at Discovery as a lead pastor. It's time for me to start picking on some of these passages. And here's one of them. So I've girded my loins like a man and I've found my bravery. And I'm going to share a passage with you I don't really know what to do with. Mark 8, 22. It's a healing story involving Jesus. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him and He took the blind man by the hand and he led him outside the village and when he had spit on the man's eyes. By the way, everything's changed since COVID, the way you understand. Hasn't it like you're like, oh, hey, whoa, can you still do that? I'm sure the man is like, Jesus, you're the son of God. I'm sure there was another way. Anyway, when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and he said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. In other words, it was a partial healing. Like, right? Like every other other healing in the Bible, Jesus says, raise up and walk. The guy's not limping. He's, according to the Sunday school song, he's leaping and dancing and praising God. When Jesus heals other blind people, 2020 vision. When Jesus heals the leper, fully clean. This guy, Jesus spits in his eye and he says, how is it? And the guy's like, well, I give it a B minus, C plus. Like I can see that there's people, but it's really fuzzy. Is there an optometrist in town, maybe Jesus, that can do some lens correction? So then, I don't know how to say it. Jesus, what, tries again? That doesn't seem right or anyway he does a second shot once more Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes and then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly and Jesus sent him home saying don't even go into the village that last phrase is just a classic gospel of Mark phrase every time Jesus heals in Mark he tells the person keep it a secret I've got enough trouble without becoming famous is basically what Jesus is saying so don't go tell anybody but this is such a strange story Jesus sees a blind man he spits on his eyes he rubs a little mud and the blind man's like eh it's all right okay no problem Jesus says another go at it and now he can see peace uh, you know perfectly what is that it's an odd story and what makes it even more odd is is Mark the author doesn't seem to feel any need to explain it he just tells it it's one of the, the most frustrating things about the authors of scripture is how comfortable they are making us uncomfortable with ambiguity like Mark throw us a bone add a sentence give us some insight All I know is sometimes I feel like the blind man in Mark who needed two touches from Jesus to be healed. And sometimes I feel like I'm living after the first touch. It's almost like if I were to take this literal healing story and turn it metaphorical, 
it feels like the first touch from Jesus is when I became a follower of Christ and the second touch is when I'm in eternity with him face to face. I'm always on the hunt for that second touch. And sometimes I wonder if we won't get that second touch until we are in heaven face to face. The way Paul shares it in 1 Corinthians, now Paul says we see but through a glass dimly. But then, Paul says, speaking about when we are with Jesus in heaven, we will see perfectly. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he was an expert in helping us live in the gap between the now of earth and the not yet of heaven, living between two worlds. Uh, maybe that's some of the reason we feel this gap. We simply won't experience the fullness of God until we're in heaven. We live between the now and the not yet. We're all Britney Spears, no longer a girl, not yet a woman. I've been trying to squeeze Britney Spears in that particular song into a sermon for years. I'm like, when can I put in, all I wanted to do as a six foot three red-blooded male is stand up and quote Britney Spears non-ironically in a message. One of my bucket list items checked. I don't believe we can eliminate the gap this side of heaven. I believe largely what it means to be a follower of Christ is to mind the gap. But I think we can manage it, we can shrink it, and we can certainly learn to not tolerate it as much as we do. So the gaps, the love of God, the presence of God, our own spiritual progress. We'll take them one at a time in the coming weeks. One of the ways that you can mind the gap is to notice when you're in a trap. Uh, you have a gap and then you get trapped in the gap. So I just want to talk to us about a couple of different traps. When I was a kid, my grandfather had a boat and one of my favorite memories is every summer we would get to live on his boat with him for a couple of weeks. It was magical. And one of the things we would do every morning is we would go out and check the lobster traps. And lobster traps are fascinating. They come in all kinds of sizes, but the one that we used was what's known as a beehive trap. I think I have a photo for you here. Actually, it's more of a sketch. And it's made out of like a wicker cane and then some wire. You can see on the bottom, there's a little escape hatches. Those are for the small lobster because there was a size limit at home and you'd have to measure them. Just as a total nerd aside, this doesn't bother you. But if you put a can of Coke between their eyes and the front of their tail, if the can of Coke is bigger than that, you throw them back if it's smaller, you can keep them. So all you have to do is drink a can of Coke, you know what size of lobster to catch. But anyway, what you do is you put the fish in the trap and the beehive, they come in through the top. But in the middle of the trap, the top comes all the way down into the trap. And so they swim down and now they're in the circle. And until you pull the trap out of the ocean, they spend the whole time just trying to get out. And what they're doing is they're ducking their head under the entrance. And so because they're ducking their head, they can't look up and see that any old fool could swim right out just the way they swim in. It's it's the most basic trap. It, there's like when you catch them, they're just swimming freely around like an aquarium. And it would take them five seconds to get out if they just stopped spinning and spinning and spinning. They are in a trap. And the trap that they're in is more of the same and try harder. 
That's why lobsters can't get free. They get trapped and then they see that they're swimming and they spin around. And oftentimes you can actually see them like a GoPro. You can put it on the trap. You can see them walking or swimming right under the exit. But because it's pushed down, they can't look up to be free. Some of you are in a lobster trap with your faith. And the simple fact is what you are doing isn't working. And then your solution to what's not working is more of the same and try harder. I'm one of the few pastors I know that recommends that sometimes you should not pray. I've gotten into trouble at a few times because it's not the kind of thing you're supposed to hear from a pastor. The fact is that prayer changes lives. Prayer connects us to God. Prayer is sometimes the first choice of relief for us. That is all true. Can we just... Um, Admit that and bank it, because sometimes prayer is also more of the same and try harder. Have you ever been really anxious about your life and you pray and pray and pray and then you come out of it and you didn't feel connected to God and you're more anxious than you were before? If that's you, it's okay. That's a very human thing to do. And so one of the traps that you can notice that you're in that's keeping you in the gap is when you're applying, applying more of the same or try harder to something that's not working. Second kind of trap is a monkey trap. I have not experienced one of these myself. Uh, myself. I've just heard about them. It's quite classic with a monkey trap. I think we have a picture of one here too. Um, is, is you take a coconut, and I think we have a second photo too there, Sean, if you want to show that one. You take a coconut and you hollow it out just big enough for a small fist and then you put a banana in there or a piece of fruit. You put something in there that when the monkey grabs it, now by grabbing it, they can't get their hand out of the trap. It's the, it's the daftest, simplest thing. All, just like the lobster. All they have to do is let go of the thing they're grasping so desperately onto and they can run free. But according to the research I've done, you can walk right up to a monkey in the trap and he's not letting go of that banana or she, I guess. I shouldn't be gender biased on this. There's probably female monkeys that get trapped too. And all she has to do is let go of it and run free. But you can just walk and put the net over the monkey, they're caught. It could be that the gap you feel is because you are holding so desperately onto something that God is calling you to release so you can be free. One of the things I've noticed in this particular culture is uh, we expect to have a full life with Jesus and a good life on the American dream at the same time. And when those two ideas sometimes clash with each other, we find the gap widening. And it simply could be that we're holding fast to something and God is saying, you have to let it go if you want to mind the gap. You have to trust me. You have to lose control of the very thing you're trying to control right now. I'm just going to give us 30 seconds. This is a regular practice we have here at this church just to take everything out of your hands and just to leave your hands. This, obviously, this is optional. Those of you at home, uh, you can do this too wherever you're sitting. Um, take everything out of your hands and if it's helpful for you, just put your hands on your lap in an open posture uh, because we live in a culture that highly encourages us to grasp things. And what we don't understand in this culture is sometimes too much grasping things now have a grip on us. 
and just a regular reminder to release. So you can just close your eyes and I'm just going to give you some silence. If, if there's something that you are clutching, there's something that you're holding on to and you know God is calling you to trust God with it, you're trying to control something that you have no business trying to control or manage. Just 30 seconds right now for you to tell God and give it to God in silence. As I've looked at the gaps that we feel and the traps we get into, I think traps come down to false belief, false expectation, and false external formation. False belief, false expectation, false external formation. That third one, the false external formation and the whole deconstruction that is sweeping through the church right now that I think the whole COVID season has just escalated into an almost second pandemic. You know, so many people are deconstructing something that God never said in the first place. They're, they're deconstructing church structures. They're deconstructing abuse of power. Uh, a, a lot of what causes a gap is what our religious expectation was, the way we were formed. But let's talk about false belief and expectation. The expectation trap. I recently was listening to an interview on Fresh Air with an agnostic philosopher, and he was critiquing Christianity. It was quite interesting. He said, he said, I wish I could help Christianity market themselves better. I thought, oh, that's interesting. He said, Christians would get a lot more traction if you taught a non-interventionist God instead of an interventionist one. In other words, what he was saying is, uh, if Christians would promote a deistic worldview, the idea that yes, there is a God, but no, God is not really involved in your life, so that way God will never let you down. I understand what he was saying, because the fact is for all our hopes that God will supernaturally intervene, God doesn't do it as often as we want. I think one of the things that keeps us trapped in a gap is we place a false expectation on how much God will swoop in and save the day. Now, the problem with this uh, agnostic philosopher is I, I can't believe in a deistic God. I, I tried it for a while. There's no good news in it whatsoever. This idea that there is a supreme being that made us and created a universe and then kind of left us to our own devices and walked away. Uh, the great unblinking stare as Dallas Willard talks about it. But what I have noticed is those of us who are Christians, when we read our Bibles, we sometimes get a false sense of God's intervention because the Bible is like two and a half thousand years of history condensed down where it feels to us like every time we turn the page, something amazing is happening where God is supernaturally intervening. But those of you who are statisticians, and thank God I'm not one, um, you could go through the scriptures and you could look at all of the eras in the Bible where God does miraculous things, like, right, like Moses and Pharaoh, like Elijah and Elisha and the bears because those teenagers made fun of his bald head. Some of the miracles are just plain fun. 
And then, of course, you know, Daniel in the lion's den. And then, of course, an intense season of miracles when Jesus was on earth, when God was with us, miracle after miracle. And then it even spilled over into the book of Acts, Peter and Paul and John and the apostles. Okay, you take all those miracles and you count up the number of miracles and there's a couple of hundred miracles, a couple of hundred. And then you divide it by the number of years that Scripture covers. If you just go from Abraham, never mind Noah and Adam and Eve because that gets tricky, just Abraham to like John the Revelator, you're looking at 2,400 years of history and you can do the math. The miracle per year ratio is actually pretty low. And that's because we want a miracle to make our life better. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you have asked God for a miracle, if you have a loved one in your life right now who needs a miracle, I would say you should absolutely ask God for that miracle. That's a great thing to do. There is nothing wrong with asking. It's just that God does not dispense them as often as we want them. Why? Because all of the miracles in Scripture were typically for a bigger purpose than just the person. Even Jesus' miracles, Jesus the compassionate one, he's typically healing people with a lesson in mind as much as he's healing them for their own sake. Maybe the gap would be shrunk if we learned the way the early church learned and the persecuted church learns to suffer with Christ. Where Paul says in Philippians, I want to know Jesus, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. And we in the West say, yes, Lord, yes, the power of his resurrection. And then Paul goes on to say, and the fellowship of his sufferings. And we in the West say, well, not so much that thanks this time, Jesus, just more resurrection power, less fellowship with your sufferings. That would do me just fine. It's difficult in the West. It's difficult when we have been formed externally by our culture to have our way, to have a good life, an easy life, a smooth life, it can be difficult to manage the gap between what we believe about God and what we experience from God. The second gap, I want to just, uh, the second trap is the comparison trap. Those of you who have been Christians for maybe more than a decade, a couple of decades, maybe you're, you're on your fifth or sixth decade of following Jesus, and you're just like, look, the fact is, I just thought I'd be further along by now. I'm just, quite frankly, not as mature a follower of Christ as I thought I would be. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. I'll, I'll say this. I found it very freeing to see myself as a baby in Christ. It's much more relaxing than seeing myself as a mature follower of Christ. So there's this one little thing. But secondly, uh, I have noticed that some streams of Christian publishing have gotten a lot of mileage out of comparing us, the comparison trap. And they compare us to the followers of Christ in the book of Acts, and they compare us to the persecuted church, and then they use guilt and shame to critique Western Christianity, and that drives me crazy. As a Western Christian trying to help Western Christians follow Jesus, it drives me nuts, and I'll tell you why. Because the people in the book of Acts had a simpler conversion journey than we do. We don't talk about this enough. Let's take Paul, the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul, he was born Jewish in a very strict Jewish upbringing, a Pharisee upbringing, And he believed in one God, and that God was the center of the universe. Paul would say from his youngest years that God was sovereign king over Paul's life. 
And Paul did all the rules and regs to please that God his whole life. He was fanatical about that God. And then that God, he met that God as an adult. And he shifted from believing that the God of legalism is the center of the universe. He shifted from that far to this far, that the God of love is the center of the universe. This was Paul's conversion journey. It's about three and a half inches long. Now, I love Paul. He's an inspiration. He changed the world. He's amazing. But yours and my conversion journey is much further because we were born with Burger King in our heart. You can have it your way. You can be anything you want. You can be president of the United States. How many of us were told, I mean, I wasn't because I'm an Aussie, but how many of you were told that you could be president one day? No, you can't. There's only one. 300 and something million people, one president, there's logically, we, but from our veriest, earliest formation, we were told it's about you. You can be anything you want. You can do anything you want. You can have it all because we were externally formed by our culture. And so our conversion journey, I would say, is a much more difficult journey than Paul's because we went from I am the center of my own universe to Jesus, the God of love, is the center of my universe. That's a hard journey. Would you agree? Or you're like, it's time for a new pastor. This guy's like borderline heretical. That's a hard journey. No one talks about that enough in this country. Also, the life expectancy in the United States around 78 to 82 years of age. Thank you, Lord, for advanced medicine and good nutrition. The life expectancy in the book of Acts between 28 and 34 years of age. It was illegal to be a Christian in the book of Acts. If you get caught being a Christian in the book of Acts, off with your head. But let's say you're a 30-year-old follower of Jesus, and you're already on overtime at that point. You're like, man, I got to admit, I live longer than I thought I would. And it's either die of some pestilence or die for Jesus. You'd much quick, more quickly give up your life for Jesus. But in this culture, when things are generally well, you know, Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul suffered so much in the Roman Empire he wanted Jesus to come quickly. He wanted death so he could no longer suffer and be with Christ. Of course, of course. And some of you may have suffered to that end. Even though you live in a prosperous, healthy Western culture, you may have suffered to a point where you're like, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Take my life now. I just want to be with you. To live as Christ and to die as gain. But the Western church, the way we tend to live is to live as gain and then to die is Christ, right? Let me live a very long life and then let me live forever with you. And I think it would help us to realize that when we get in this comparison trap, all we do is we get into guilt and shame, more of the same, try harder. And it's, it's futile, it doesn't help. Through this series, we're not just going to look at gaps and traps. We're also going to look at pathways to freedom. We're not just going to diagnose the problem. We're also going to give us some tools out. And I just want to give you one tool this week. It's actually going to be a piece of homework uh, for those of you who want to try it. Because I believe the pathway to freedom is through release and worship. Release and worship. Uh, checking what we're grasping and seeing if it's what God is calling us to grasp. Release. One of the top idols, cultural idols in our culture is control. And we are conditioned by our culture, so we want to be in control. And maybe the pathway is release of control.
maybe we would shrink the gap if we trusted more. And the second one is worship. I'm going to invite Jimmy and the team to come out and prepare us for worship. And of course, I, I do actually literally mean gathering together and singing and receiving communion. But the homework this week is actually worship that happens after we gather. I'm going to invite you this week to hunt for the micro gifts from God. Go on a treasure hunt this week for the micro gifts from God. I believe one of the great reasons we feel this gap between what we believe about God and what we experience from God is we simply are not very aware Sunday through Saturday. We come into this room and we sing, or those of you joining us online, and we receive the bread and the cup, and it helps orient our awareness around the king of the universe. But how many of us then wake up Monday morning and it's just the to-do list and we're cranking through and we're on the cultural treadmill. It's very normal. And so one of the things I've been working on intentionally in my own life since 2015, since I got fed up with not experiencing the love of God for myself, is I make a point every day to hunt for the micro evidences of God in my life. And like anything that you practice over time, I don't mean to brag, but I'm getting better at it. I wasn't very good at it in 2015. I'm quite good at it now. I'd be happy to brag to you one-on-one on how I do it. But all you have to do is figure out what gifts has God given me in my life that maybe I didn't know were gifts from God. What people, what activities, what are the gifts that God has given me How can I orient my calendar this week to keep running into the love of God, the goodness of God? Sometimes they're very large gifts, like maybe it's people in your life. Sometimes it's a small gift, like a single bite of lint chocolate. Yesterday, I ran into the gifts of God through my golden retriever's floppy ears. There's just something whimsical about scratching the floppy ears of a dog. And so this may sound crazy to you, but I do it every day. My dog really enjoys when I'm worshiping. And when I do it, I'm just like, God, thank you for the gift of whimsy. Thank you that you made me a human, that you gave us the gift of play. It turns out that if you go on a hunt for the micro gifts of God, you will find hundreds and hundreds of things in your life. So I'm going to encourage you this week as you start managing the gap in your own life to go on the hunt and actually make a physical list. If you don't have a list, actually start writing it down. And what I've discovered is I run into the goodness of God everywhere. It does not take away the pain. It does not straighten the path. My life still gets pretty messy sometimes, but it definitely augments it with all of the little hints that God has put around me that God is good and God is with me. Because the fact is when I'm in control, I forget that God is with me. When I release and I look for the goodness of God, I remember God is with me. And it's a visceral encounter. So I'm going to invite us to remember God is with us together. Those who are able in the room, if you'd like to stand. Those of you at home, if it helps you to stand and worship, it may feel weird, but it might help you to release and stand up. Paul tells us, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's sing.